This is episode number 76 of Patrick Jones Baseball. In this episode, I bring on Randy Sullivan, who is the CEO and founder of the Florida Baseball Ranch. Uh, Randy is also a pitching instructor who works with Major League Baseball pitchers, minor league pitchers, college pitchers. Um, We get into kind of how do you train a pitcher in a safe and efficient way in this episode. Um, Randy does a fantastic job of not only training his players, but uh, backing it up by research and science. Um, He'll get into that exactly how he does what he does down at the Florida Baseball Ranch in this episode. If you guys could also make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I would greatly appreciate that. Um, That helps other people find the show, listen to the show, helps me get on more and more guests so I can put out more content for you guys. So again, please head on over to iTunes and uh, subscribe, rate, and leave a review, and uh, I would greatly be honored. So without further ado, here is Randy Sullivan. We now welcome on Randy Sullivan, who is the founder of the Florida Baseball Ranch. Randy, I really appreciate you coming on today. Hey, thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it. It's, it's my pleasure to be here. So could you give our listeners a little bit of your background, um, just in general? Yeah, okay. So um, a, a 17-year-old son who was throwing 79 miles an hour and couldn't get recruited to play in college. And so when I asked all the, all the baseball guys, how do we teach him to throw harder, they all said, you know, it's impossible. It's like trying to grow a bigger head. You can't do it. It's just a gift from God. And I thought, well, it's, it's, a, it's a skill. It's, it's a movement. So we can teach it. So I started researching everything I could find. And uh, my journey took me to the Texas Baseball Ranch where Coach Wolforth was the first one to ever say, yeah, we know how to do this and we'll show you how. And so we got on a plan and it really helped him. He went from, from like 81 as a senior to 93 coming out of JUCO. And the world was different for him out of JUCO and from the recruiting standpoint. So we began to realize that the same variables that were helping guys improve their velocity was contribute to improving their arm health. And so we were kind of attracting all players in our physical therapy practice because I was coaching my three boys in the baseball community and people would come by and say, hey, well, you're, you're a physical therapist. My son has a hurt arm. Can I bring him by? And I would realize that there was just this, this, this big gap between the rehab and then the actual throwing. And we were just letting guys go with sort of the standardized return of throwing protocol, you know, 25 throws and 45 feet. And everybody was on the same program. I'm like, how can the, how in the world could everybody in the nation have the same return of throwing protocol? So we started looking at all the variables that might contribute to injury and began to develop a pretty highly refined process for managing arm care, uh, managing arm injuries, managing pain, and uh, it evolved into something that we call the Armory Power Pitching Academy, which really was just a little 900-square-foot place in a, in a strip mall in an office right next to our physical therapy practice. And it kind of caught on. We were helping guys gain velocity. We are helping guys improve command. We are helping guys uh, overcome injuries and arm pain. And we just began to attract a lot of people there, and we kind of outgrew the place. And so um, after a couple of attempted its expansions as best we could within the confines of that little strip mall that we were in. Um, I was approached by Coach Wolforth. We had developed a relationship over the years, and my sons had all been out there to train. I'd been out there to help with couple camps, spoken at a couple of uh, their coaches' boot camps. And he said, you know what, Randy, you know, we're, we're better together than we are separate, and we have sort of the same philosophy, and we've become really good friends. Why don't we form the Florida Baseball Ranch? And so 
we found 18 acres of property out here right between Orlando and Tampa. And we started clearing trees and putting up a building. And it's, it's sort of evolved with this thing that we call the Florida Baseball Ranch. And it's, it's a dream come true for me. I can't believe that every day I get to come to work and do the things I do. Um, but really, it just evolved out of a, a father's desire to help his son improve. And then, you know, sort of this insatiable appetite for learning that it created that, that, had it, that set us down this path. And, you know, I've surrounded myself with a great team of people that, you know, help me run things here and keep, keep me from running into the ground and giving me the freedom to think and create and, uh, and come up with processes and systems that help our guys get better. And it's been just a joy to watch so many of our players you know, improve their ability and, and get opportunities they never had before, um, overcome arm pain when even doctors had said, hey, you probably shouldn't be throwing anymore, and they, they make it back and they're playing college and professional baseball now. It's just so fun to to think that you played at least even a minor role in that. And it's just it's just been, you know, a really great way to kind of go into this last, like, 25 years of work that I figure I have left. Yeah, and I have seen um, some videos and pictures of uh, of the Florida Baseball Ranch. It looks really incredible. It really does. Let me take you back to when you were talking about how every you said like when a lot of people go get rehab, everyone has the same type of like protocol. Is that what you're talking about? As like everyone has like the, the, the typical uh, max 120 feet when they're throwing um, after rehab. Yeah, it's the same 28 week return to protocol. I think one time I googled return to throwing for baseball players and the first 10 pages, not the first 10 articles, the first 10 pages were all basically the same return to throwing program that, you know, the interval program, which is really fine, but it wasn't customized at all for each guy. Every, everybody was doing the exact same thing. And if you thought about it, like here was what we we're doing. We had guys that were injured. We had not really identified all of the variables that contributed to the injury. You know, the assumption was that, okay, it was just workload and that, overuse created the symptoms and created the problem and created the injury and so if we rest and we repair the tissue and we go back to throwing we gradually work up the ramp the ramp up the workload then the problem will be solved but the, but the problem is the workload is just the tip of the iceberg you have, you have a lot of other variables that contribute to arm injury uh such as your physical constraints your tightness your weakness your asymmetries that would be type one contributors and these are sort of in rank order for us type two contributors would be uh, biomechanical considerations like, you know, arm action inefficiencies or lower half inefficiencies or problems with timing or sequencing or synergy of the movement. Um, and then type three would be your tissue preparation, your warm up, your ramp up, your, your recovery. Are you, are you infusing the tissue with blood before you actually ask it, you know, to be, to perform at a high level? And then what are you doing to restore and, and realign the, uh, the, the fibers that, that repair themselves after you have a throwing event? That would be type three contributors. And then type four would be training-related variables, like are you involved in, in weight training programs? Um, are you involved in weighted ball programs or long toss programs or long-distance running? Or is your practice just not deliberate? Um, training-related variables that would either contribute to or take away from your performance, you know, cause either subpar performance or pain and subsequent injury. And then we have, you know, things like sleep, hydration, and nutrition as number five. And those are all really critical because you have to fuel the performance with proper nutrition. You have to get enough rest so you can recover, at, at, you know, optimally. And you have to have the right amino acids to repair the tissue after you've created your microscopic trauma from each throwing event. And so then number six is workload. How many pitches, innings, limits, pitch counts, things like that. And it became clear to me that, look, if we can solve types one through five, then our throwers can, our guys can throw a lot. They can handle heavy volume. And, but... If one through five are not bad, 
then are, are not good, I'm sorry, then 10 pitches may be too much for that athlete. And so this universal, like across, across the board, kind of broad sweeping pitch counts and innings limits. And then this just standard return to throwing protocol where everybody just returned to throwing exactly like they did before without ever addressing types one through five variables. The assumption was that workload was the issue. And that's a pretty big gamble for me. I wasn't willing to take that chance. So what we wanted to do was begin to customize return to throwing protocols so that we examine every possible contributor. And, and while we were doing the return to throwing protocol, you know, the 28 week protocol that goes out, you know, eventually goes out to 120 feet and, you know, progresses to mound pitches and, you know, live batting practice and the same things that we all do. I wanted to try to steal some of those reps. I was really, I really liked the volume progression. I liked that we had a heavy week and a light week and then a heavy week and a light week. And we kind of gradually incrementally added stress with regard to workload. But I didn't like the fact that we didn't do anything to change the other six types of variables, especially the biomechanical and the physical ones, uh, as we were doing the return to throwing protocols. And so I tried to, to customize programs so that we would identify what each player needed, what kind of what kind of uh, movement path considerations he needed. He would reduce the risk of actually having a recurrence of the injury. And I wanted to take some of the reps that we use for just sort of mindless throwing uh, to, you know, to, in our return to throwing protocols and use those to actually repattern movements to train more optimal movement patterns. And so we had a lot of success with that. And, you know, it really, it really evolved into this, this practice that we had that attracted all these baseball players. And many of them were there because they wanted to prove their performance. Uh, others were there because they wanted to overcome arm pain. And we kind of created this hybrid of a practice that evolved into the, the Florida baseball ranch. And it's been it's been a lot of fun to research it and go down that path of, of helping guys get better. Every single guy that comes in is a puzzle, whether they're trying to improve their ability, whether they're trying to uh, overcome an arm injury or something. It's it's really a unique puzzle that requires custom approach, which involves a really in-depth, uh, well-thought-out, well-designed assessment to allow us to target the training so that we get the best return on our training time and get the optimal results. Why do you think um – there are so many, and I and I say this because you you see, or what I've heard before is, you know, when kids are very young, um, from the time they start playing baseball till high school, um, some are just they're overused like crazy, especially on the mound, and so some people say that well, that's why they end up getting Tommy John years and years later. Um, is that do you think that's why we see so many Tommy John injuries or surgeries? I no, should say? Uh, I actually actually don't agree with that. Um, okay. I think it's a I think it's an easy answer to a really complex problem. And I think that it's really easy for us to just revert to, uh, through two, okay. The, the fundamental flaw in the thinking is that, and, and we see it in the running industry as well. Okay. You, you have a, you have an avid runner that comes into my physical therapy practice and he has shin splints or a hip injury or something like that. The immediate response is, Oh, it's overuse. You have to run less. Well, you ask a runner not to run. It's like asking a runner not to breathe. And so it's really deeper than just overuse um in theory if you use the joints properly if, if you have proper coordination timing and motor control and you have biomechanical stresses that are within reasonable limits you should be able to run indefinitely without creating overuse injuries and it's sort of the same in throwing the assumption out of the gate is that every injury that occurs is due to overuse and i think that as i as described earlier there's not really, there's not, of course, there's a limit. There's a reasonable limit that you got to stay within. But 
but if if you can control the types one through five variables and make those more optimal, then you can throw a lot more. And to be honest, if you're going to become an elite thrower, you have to be able to throw more than the average guy throws. Uh, to become a great thrower, you got to be able to throw. And so to be able to throw a lot, you got to get those type one through five variables really under control and make sure they're optimizing every possible and, and, and reducing every possible risk factor as much as, as much as you can. And so I think the, the, the easy cop out is for us to say, oh, these kids are overused. But listen, I've been around a lot of really elite young throwers. And with all the information that's available now, I don't see kids being overused. I really don't. I don't see parents, you know, uh, forcing kids to throw when they're hurting. I don't see kids. I see parents of, of elite throwers of the high end guys counting pitches like rabbitly, just just like like almost addictively counting pitches and and watching innings limits. And and I can't tell you the number of times that people walk into my physical therapy and they say, man. I don't know why he got hurt. We, we didn't go over 85 pitches. We didn't throw over 100 innings. We didn't play on two teams. We didn't play catcher and pitcher at the same time. And they still don't know why they got hurt. But then you do the evaluation. You're like, my goodness, you have all these physical constraints. You have all these mobility and stability issues. You have this combination, this, this cocktail of uh, mechanical issues that are contributing to the problem. Your, your warm-up is terrible. Your recovery is awful. Your training program, you're not, you're not building the strength and power and motor coordination to be able to support what you're trying to do. And you're not, ha you're not sleeping well, you don't have good nutrition. Uh, and so all of those things are contributing yet. All we're doing is counting pitches. And that seems really shallow to me. That it seems like the pitch count innings limits are the tip of the iceberg. And it's really easy for us as medical professionals to say, well, you know, it's these awful parents who are abusing their kids and these terrible coaches who are, who are overusing them. I don't really see that. I see, I see us not looking deep enough into the complexity of the problem, and we're looking for a really simple solution to a highly complex problem that requires a lot of a lot of deep thought, a lot of deep evaluation, a lot of deep assessment, and a customized, individualized program so that every guy can thread that needle perfectly between development and safety. You know, let's face it, no one no one on the planet is interested in a program that improves your velocity or your command and puts you at an increased risk of injury. No, no one wants that. Um, on the other hand, no one is interested in a program, at least as far as I know, no one's interested in a program that, that guarantees complete safety and squelches your development. So our job as professionals in the, in the medical industry and in the, in the training industry is to help each player and services guide to help him thread that needle perfectly so that we get him where he wants, optimize his ability to the best that we can get it, and reduce the risk of injury, of injury as much as possible. Well, it's pretty pretty clear, Randy, that you know what you're doing down at the Florida Baseball Ranch, and and, and the guys who, who come to see you are, are in good hands. For those kids and you know parents who are who are listening right now, who maybe you know don't live in Florida or near you, I mean, what should they do to make sh make sure that their 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 kid or if they're if this is a player listening, that them personally should get the care that they need or get the screening or just all the help that that you get? How how can they learn about that? Well, uh, that's that's a really that's a really good question, and here's the problem. Okay. When we first started doing this 10 years ago, there was no information available. There was, there was virtually nothing that you could find on, on how to optimize movement patterns and how to, I mean, there was some, and what was there, some was good and some was quite, you know, frankly, not good. And now you fast forward, you know, 10 years, 12 years to the future, where we are now, and it seems like on every corner, there's a velocity program, 
there's a guy, there's someone who claims to be an expert in this and expert in that. And, and, you know, you know, I, I kind of shudder at the term, but, you know, uh, I think that information is, is the enemy right now. I mean, for a lot of guys, information, disinformation, misinformation, there's so much out there now that you can kind of get lost in the haze. And so it's the, the hard thing is, who do you trust? Okay, so I want to get a physical assessment. Okay, it would be easy for me to sit here and say, well, if a kid can't get here to see us, then he has to go to a physical therapist and get a physical assessment. But but what is the nature of that assessment and what, what, what angle are we coming from? And is that physical therapist, is he does he have complete information to be able to analyze it? And the answer is I don't know, okay? I mean, I'm sure there are some really good guys out there that know what they're doing. It's hard to know who to trust. Same thing with your biomechanical analysis. So you got to get all these variables checked. You got to get your, you got to get your mechanics checked out. And but there's so many different definitions now of what what are what are optimal mechanics. What are, you know, what are um, what are more favorable mechanics? I should say not optimal, but what what mechanical variables put you at risk for injury? And so you know, right now it's really tough on. There's so much information they really don't know where to go. So. For me to say, yeah, I think as a minimum, you need to get a physical assessment from, I don't, I don't, the more I do this, I don't know how I as a pitching coach can make any recommendations about changing a pitcher's mechanics when I don't at least have the data, the information about whether he's physically capable of doing what I'm asking him to do. For example, if I'm asking him to hip hinge and get into his glutes a little more to use his lower half better, but he has tight quads and tight, and he has poor ankle mobility and, and, and he can't get into that position, then he's going to to do it that that kind of maybe compromises another part of his body and puts him at risk and so um so we need to understand that 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 you got to get the right guy to look at the right things and you know that's really hard um and then biomechanically those two are intimately interwoven am, am i this way because i'm tight but you know that's the first part of it um in in today's world trying to identify you know for a long time the trouble was no one knew what to work on. We, we wanted to work hard. This generation gets knocked on all the time about not wanting to work hard, about being lazy. And I, what I see is a bunch of guys who are really smart and intuitively smell out, they sniff out bad, you know, bad, bad instruction. But uh, they want to work hard. They just don't want to work on the wrong stuff. Okay, so how do you find the wrong stuff? Um, that's really tough. But now with, with as much data collection as we can do and as much objective measurement as we can do, Figuring out what to work on is pretty simple. You know, you can do a biomechanical analysis. You can say you need to increase this or improve that. The the new frontier for me is going to finding a person that understands the why, that not the why, understands the how. Okay, it's one thing to know what to work on, but really the key is understanding motor learning and skill acquisition science, so that you can apply that science and be able to teach the kid how to do it without corrupting the process. And that's, to me, the new frontier for me, if, if we're going to be science-based and, 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 and data-driven, yet we ignore the science of motor learning, take advantage of, of scientifically shown best practices for teaching and what is the best for a student to learn and to improve or, or to gain new then we're kind of leaving a lot on the table as far as, you know, our objective approach to to assessing and then teaching would you say that um when when you're talking about motor learning and skill acquisition that 
we're still really behind um, the eight ball when it comes to just giving way too many verbal cues versus kind of letting players putting them putting them in an environment and giving them like a, a range or uh, like different um, things that they can work on so they can kind of find their um, own unique uh, movements. Um, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, look, it's not about never giving verbal instructions. We get knocked on to that a lot in self is not just rolling them out there and letting them figure it out. I've heard that on, on social media too. Oh, you just want them to roll out there and figure it out. It's, that's not what self-organization is about. Self-organization is, is a process based on dynamic systems theory, which really is a kind of a kind of emergent from uh, behavioral psychology and differential calculus where you, you identify the important components of, of a movement, the parts that must be stable. Those are called attractors. And then you also identify the parts that can be variable. The, those are called fluctuations. And you try to find the perfect blend between stability and, and adjustability in the movement. And the way you train that can either can either facilitate the process or it can corrupt it. And so we get, we get really lost sometimes in coaching because the easy way to go is to go is to have a kid with a, with a, with a mechanical disconnection and say, you need to stop doing that. Or, no, I need you to focus on doing this. Now, next time you throw a ball, I need you to concentrate on this. I need you to think about doing this. But when you measure the amount of time it takes for a neurologic impulse to go from the brain to bring in, it's just not enough time in the 1.5 seconds it takes for you to make a pitch for any of that adjustment that you have to have to happen subconsciously. We know that you're never going to be able to repeat a movement pattern, that every single throw is going to be unique. And so rather than, than focusing on this idea, this reductionist idea that we have an optimal movement pattern that we have the perfect mechanics and that you're going to try to repeat that model over and over again. What we have to create is an athlete who is able to make those adjustments on the fly. And that has to happen subconsciously because the math simply doesn't work. There's not enough time for conscious thought. So one of the problems that I see in overutilization of verbal cueing is that we're asking a person to perform a skill that mathematically does not allow him the the luxury of time to think about what he's doing or have, you know, any kind of conscious input as to what he's doing other than the intent that, that you use to create the movement. Um, yet we continue to coach him through, through means that demand conscious thought all the time. And so it's, it's the, it's the argument of explicit versus implicit learning. Explicit means the coach tells you what to do. He watches you do it. He instructs you on everything that you did wrong and he tells you how to do it better. I call it twit training, tell, watch, inform, and tell. Okay. Um, and it's really inefficient according to the motor learning and skill acquisition research. Um, that's not the optimal way or, or the most efficient way for us to learn movement skills. In fact, it can sometimes corrode the process and, and cause an erosion of performance. Um, implicit learning is probably the best way to acquire movement skills according to the motor learning scientists. And that involves a little more thought, a little more, a little more uh, preparation, a little bit deeper thinking, a little bit deeper investigation. Because now, instead of trying to tell the athlete what to do, we have to elicit the changes that we want through subconscious means by, by creating an environment where he can experiment with his body and find his own solution to the problem. That sounds really hokey. It sounds like we're just letting him go out there and do whatever he wants. It's not that at all, man. It's, it's arranging the environment. It's, it's adjusting the constraints of a drill or an activity. It is creating an environment by either changing the athlete, changing the task, or changing the environment uh, so that we elicit different movement patterns. And, you know, that's really 
what we're going to be talking about at our skill acquisition summit that's coming up. You know, the motor learning science is there. We need to take the science and look field, and that requires a lot of creativity, a lot of ingenuity, and a lot of, first, you have to have a really good fundamental understanding. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be a motor learning scientist, but you have to have a, a fundamental understanding of the principles of motor learning and skill acquisition science, and then you have to become really creative and, and, and develop a process or a system for implementing that science and so that we optimize our return on training time for athletes and don't get in our way. So many times, you know, we have these things we call disconnections, which are, which make it difficult to achieve those attractors, the, the attractors that we identify in the movement, the stable parts. And there are really basically four reasons that disconnections occur that I see. Number one is most frequently disconnections, mechanical disconnections are taught by well-meaning people. Look, nobody's, nobody's trying to make anybody worse or trying to, or trying to get anybody hurt, but we don't always have complete information. And, and you know, even at the Florida baseball ranch, we, the information changes constantly as we, we we kind of discover new new ideas um but the, the most common thing i see is you know we get and we get we get something a verbal cue that's been repeated and passed down and down and down something like get your elbow up or point the ball to second base or or reach with your leg or or something like that and it creates a disconnection and and you know we didn't mean to do it it was just that that's the or weakness or asymmetry because you have no choice but to move in the manner that you're moving and that results in a disconnection Third way I see it is when we go when we go completely on intent based training, which was kind of a rage for a while. Intent, 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 and the body will organize itself. Well, you know what I found is the body will organize itself to accomplish the goal, but it won't always find the safest or the most. Will find the body can shortcuts if you allow it to. If you don't, if you don't kind of guide it. Many times, the third way that I see disconnections occur are. The, the guy is just looking for, for energy in all the wrong places. He's not getting it from his lower half, and so he shrugs his shoulders into an inverted W or, or something else or pulls his head off or has early torso rotation. As he tries to create energy because his intent tells me he needs to throw harder, but he doesn't have the physical uh, mobility stability or the mechanical efficiency to be able to accomplish it without disconnecting. So that would be the third one. And then the fourth one, every once in a while, a kid just shakes really taught him how to do it he just kind of chose a random path that is inefficient and it's it's not it's not the safest or the most productive way for him to throw and so you really have to be able to identify what are the important components of the movement what are the attractors that need to be stable and then what are the fluctuations that i can allow to happen they're just sort of style things that i can allow to happen as long as those attractors become stable and you know what is it what is the definition of efficient movement and then what is the objective data tell us what one of the things that I've been seeing a lot like online lately, um, and I know I think some people have actually been saying it to you as well, is um, like pull downs when you're throwing. Guys are trying to throw as hard as they can. What's the the background on on pull downs? Yeah. Okay, that's a really good question. We get knocked on this a lot. Um, yeah, that's why. That's why I brought well, it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so it goes back to two things. It goes back to, uh, and the medical side. To the save your bullets or load the weapon campaign, right? It, it, it's one or the two. You, you either you got to protect it this and, and avoid all stress and save the tissue because you only have so many bullets in the gun. Well, that really defies the laws of physiology. There's a law in physiology called Davis's law that says that any tissue that has a blood supply can remodel itself to resist the stresses, and it will always remodel itself to resist the stresses under which it's placed. It's it's akin to Wolf's law, which is the bone uh, cousin of it. And, you know, you get an astronaut that goes up in space for 30 days, 
he comes down, his bones are remodeled because there's been no stress. And he's had atrophy and his bones are brittle. And really, if we eliminate all stress, that's what we get. If we never add stress, we create fragility. In our effort to protect the children, we actually make them more likely to get hurt because we're, we're not adding stress at all. And so now when they do uh, undergo uh, a degree of stress, uh, they, they, their tissue hasn't prepared for it. It hasn't been ready for it. So you can't eliminate all stress. So you have to add stress. But the key is adding it gradually, incrementally, systematically over time. So the first thing is this idea that because pull-downs add stress, then they're just the worst thing ever. Of course they add stress. And of course you have to add stress. If you add no stress, you'd never get any gains. But it's not like every guy just runs down our gym and throws the ball at 100 miles an hour every time. These are guys who have been working at it for four weeks, a month, six, you know, six months sometimes. And they – they've gradually gotten to the point where we feel like, all right, now this tissue is robust enough to tolerate the stress and we're going to add some stress. Now that's, that's the, that's the physiologic side of it. Okay. This idea that long toss weighted balls and pull downs and all these things that, that absolutely do add stress. The knock against such practices is that they add stress to the joints or to the ligaments, to the, to the connective tissue. In my mind, when used appropriately, that's the benefit. That's the, the exact, the argument against it is the exact argument for it because without stress, there's no adaptation. We're trying to elicit adaptation. We're trying to get an athlete to perform better. You are trying to elicit adaptation. And if there's no stress, there's no adaptation. And in fact, if there's no stress, you're actually doing the opposite of that. You have an adaptation, but it's a negative adaptation. All right, now let's go to the motor control component. Now, this is really important because so many people out there that knock on you know, long toss and weighted ball programs and, and pull downs and things like that, uh, they really don't have an understanding of dynamic systems theory and the way the human body works. Okay? They're trying to solve a really complex problem with Newtonian physics and linear cause and effect relationships. But in a dynamic system such as th is the human body, uh, in dynamic systems theory, is, is it emerges out of differential calculus and behavioral psychology. And it's DST is used it's a system used to predict and, 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 and identify the behavior of components of really complex systems like ecological systems, environments, political systems, uh, things where there are not cause and effect relationships between variables because there's so many variables. And in the human body, your, your body is a biological complex system. And the nature of such a system is this. The state and behavior of every single cell in your athlete's body at any given snapshot in time on the state and behavior of every cell around it and around it and around it and around so on and so on and so on. And so, and then as soon as you change the time, the conditions all change. And so the nature of that system is that it is, it is really sensitive to stimulus. Um, it's, it's also very highly adaptable. I mean, people say that, you know, throwing hard is a gift, you know, it's a God-given gift. The gift that we've been given is what, what Anders Ericsson pointed out in his book called Peak. It's the gift that we've all been given. It's this incredibly adaptable body, man, and we all have it. We all have it. And if we apply the right stresses, human tissue does not have a free will. It cannot say, no, I'm not going to respond. If we get the stresses right, we can elicit the adaptations that we want. It's controlling those stresses and using motor learning and, and, and skill acquisition science to, to teach those stresses in the right way, to teach the adaptations in the right way. And so now when we talk about the motor learning component of things like long toss and weighted balls and, and running throws, okay, 
uh, really, there are six different ways, and that's what I'm going to be talking about at our skill acquisition conference. That's my my speed, my, my presentation is on six different ways to to influence movement patterns that don't involve verbal cueing or cognitive thought. And one of them is that if you can stabilize the attractors, the key components of the movement, if you can make those stable, then the fluctuations begin to eliminate themselves. So I think of it as a luge going down a tunnel. When when the the luge is flopping off from side to side and going off on the, it's really inefficient, but when you can decrease the bandwidth of the fluctuations, now the movement becomes more stable, more efficient, and we improve our ability and we keep our arms safer and healthy. Um, so if and, um, so, what we need to have is we need to have the attractors stabilized, but we need to have enough fluctuations available so that we have the opportunity to adjust when we inevitably go off course. Okay, so if, if we never train with variable stimulus, if all we do is throw from a 60-foot, 6-inch mound to home plate on, you know, in a pitching environment, adhering to the specificity and, and training principle, the said principle, specific ad adaptation to an imposed demand, then we never teach the athlete to adjust when he inevitably goes off course, and he will because you're not going to be able to repeat his movement pattern over and over again. So the way we use things like weighted balls or long toss or running throws is this. Okay, For me, the value of a weighted ball program is – under the right conditions with a really well-trained athlete whose system has had time to adapt and the tissue has had time to become robust, resilient. I mean, our weighted ball training might not even begin until we're 12 weeks into the process because we've had to allow that tissue time to adapt. And then when we need to add variability, we can use that to teach adjustability so that when we inevitably move off course, we're more efficient and we can get the bandwidth of our errors to be less because we've rehearsed the error, we've rehearsed the adjustment the, the adjustment by using the variable stimulus that is the differential training of weighted balls. The value to me of weighted ball program is not in arm strength or arm speed. It is that all the throws are different. And so that teaches us adjustability subconsciously, implicitly, without having to talk about it. And so uh, by avoiding such training modalities, uh, you, you know, you might be creating a situation where the athlete is actually more fragile because when we talk about just the stresses on the joints, we're talking about simple Newtonian physics, but this is a much more complex problem that involves timing, sequencing, and synergy and motor control. When when a, a, a device tells us that we have you know 70 newton meters of torque on the elbow, that doesn't really tell us much unless it's compared to what the guy had yesterday, because we might that guy might be really good at using motor coordination, timing, sequencing, and synergy to attenuate those forces so it has very little effect on his system. Um, another guy you know, 35 newton meters of torque might be too much for him. And so it's, it's much deeper than just simple angles and biomechanics. It's, it's, it's timing, coordination, and motor control. And so now let's talk about long toss, okay? Uh, my friend Alan Jager gets knocked down a lot about this. And, and listen, for me, long toss is not a panacea. Weighted balls are not a panacea. They're a tool. They're just another tool in the box that we can use to add a little bit of stress incrementally, gradually over time to, to elicit a tissue adaptation to make it become more resilient, more robust but also to train motor coordination when we begin to venture off course of our normal movement pattern. Um, the knock against long toss is that it adds stress. We already talked about that. What's the value of it is it adds stress. Um, and then the other knock is that every throw is sort of a different movement pattern. And I'm like, absolutely, and that's what I'm trying to do because I want to I wanna rehearse adjustments. I want to be able to rehearse adjustments. Now, if you control the stress, if you get a guy who's pretty well connected and you video his long toss and he doesn't have a significant amount of disconnections there, then there's really nothing wrong with using long toss because I think, again, the value of long toss to me is not necessarily arm strength or arm speed. 
it's the variability. It's that every throw is a different distance, and so we get a different release point on every throw, and so we learn to adjust and get a ball to a target no matter where we find ourselves in space as we make these inevitable uh, errors that we're going to make, even, you know, some of them more significant than others, some of them more subtle, but we're always going to deviate. We need to be able to practice or rehearse the adjustment subconsciously. And so then that brings us to the old running throws. And, you know, we show those on video because they're really exciting and the radar gun goes, you know, off. And people don't understand that the kids that are doing that have been training for a long time. <clears throat> they're really robust, really resilient. And the value of the running throw to me is that the, by speeding up the movement pattern, I force the body to choose the most efficient pathway. Catchers and shortstops have the best action on the field. They've never had the luxury of time. They've always had to hurry. And so we're trying to mimic that speeding up of the movement pattern to force the body to elicit the most optimal pathway to move. And, and in doing so, we coincidentally stabilize the attractors. So the running throws help us uh, force the body to choose a more efficient pattern and it stabilizes the attractors. And you know, if it adds more stress, then that may be a good thing if not done on the first day of training. Um, I, I really do like how, how um, you know, you really broke down how you don't just start doing, you know, pull downs out of nowhere because you see that all the time on social media where um, you, you, you see the pull downs. And so, you know, a lot of people just assume that you're, you're doing that um, right from the get go. That's just not the case. Let's talk about the skill acquisition summit that's coming up in September. Um, you talked about how you're going to awesome. be speaking at it. Um, what what should what should people expect who are who are maybe thinking about going? All right, so so here's here's the deal. Um, I I had the opportunity to go over and spend some time with the Dutch national program, um, and my friends over there in the Netherlands are really, you know, right now in the baseball universe, they're kind of light years ahead of us in up in 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 really understanding the science of motor learning and skill acquisition. And so you know, I met doctor. Uh, I met um. Okay, Rob Gray. I talked to him on the on uh, on the phone a few times. I followed him, Dr. Rob Gray, on on many of his podcasts. I just became enamored with his. But it sort of all started from when uh, I was at the Texas Baseball Ranchers Coaches Boot Camp, and and I listened to Franz Bosch speak on 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 motor learning and skill acquisition with regard to baseball, and I was blown away. And it it, it kind of revolutionized my thought process, and really sent me on a path of of research learning and skill acquisition science that I, you know, I was embarrassed to say that I had taken motor learning graduate level classes in the 1990s, but it sort of stopped doing it, stopped researching it and thought, okay, I got to figure it out. I know how to do that. But it, it, it evolved so quickly and I got left behind. I saw this gap that we had these brilliant skill acquisition scientists, um, guys like Rob Gray and, and, uh, and, and Franz Bosch. And then we had these baseball coaches that were trying to apply it, but there was this big gap. And so I thought, what if I could get them all together and have some of the some of the most forward-thinking baseball-related skill, the theories and the scientific uh, methodology, and then I could teach some coaches who kind of get it and kind of have, have shown to be really adept at applying the science and getting results in their students and their players. And if I could get them together and have a conference for coaches and physical therapists and athletic trainers and and you know chiropractors and and strength and conditioning coordinators, because really all different have to operate under that same paradigm um, and if we can get them all together and science and then teach them actionable practical ways and give them the tools to be able to take this information forward that it would it could be a seminal event in the in the baseball coaching and training industry 
And so I just started calling all the people I knew and, and man, I couldn't believe it that, that these wonderful people agreed immediately to say, yeah, they thought it was a good idea and let's show up. And so what we have going on is September 8th and 9th, we have what we call the Dutch baseball. I mean, it's the Florida baseball ranch slash Dutch baseball skill acquisition summit. And it's the first ever of its kind. And it's going to feature Franz Bosch from the Netherlands. He's a, he's a professor of biomechanics at the Fontes university in the Netherlands. And one of the foremost coaches in, in, track and field and rugby in implementing the, the, the science of skill acquisition and motor learning. Um, and so he will be a lot of the principles for us. And Rob Gray from uh, Arizona State University, who does the Perception Action Podcast, which has really kind of been a great source of information for me, technology and things like that. And then we have Coach Ron Wolfelt, of course, who introduced me to Franz Bosch and was the first to kind of guide me toward this um, motor learning skill acquisition approach to managing players. And, you know, he and I have become dear friends and, and colleagues, and we formed this collaboration called the Florida Base, I mean, the Texas Baseball Ranch, Florida Baseball Ranch. We call it a consortium where we exchange ideas all the time and kind of help each other get better by challenging each other constantly. He's just one of those brilliant guys that I know, coaches. So he'll be there speaking. I'll be doing my part, too. We have Paul Venner, who's the conditioning coordinator for that for the, the Dutch uh, national program. And then we have Bart Hanegraaff, who's the hitting coach. And so what we're going to be doing is going through and identifying, first of all, the fundamental principles in motor learning and skill acquisition. And then we're going to talk about throwing or pitching and hitting. And we're going to identify the attractors in the movement, the fluctuations. And then we're going to have Paul Venner talk about how do we train those things in the gym? How do we address our strength and conditioning programs to, uh, to, to train the attractors the best we can? And then I'll be talking about our six different ways to influence a movement pattern without, uh, without using verbal cues. And my other part will be... Um, describing it and demonstrating how we've taken this uh, self-organization process and created a self-organization program for managing arm pain and arm injury and how we use that in the, in the therapy practice to help guys get better and help their bodies self-organize away from painful movements and back to more efficient, non-painful movements. And so the first day is going to be lecture in theory and all of us talking, giving presentations in a meeting room in a hotel. And then we're going to come out here to the ranch. We're going to break into four different rotations, and I'll be handling the uh, the, the, the self-organization section. I'll have um, Ron Wolforth and Martin Nyhoff will be talking about using uh, you know, variability in training and, and constraint-led approaches and differential learning and things like that to teach, uh, to, to better, most efficiently teach throwing or pitching. Uh, and then I'm going to have Bart, uh, Bart Hennegraff, the, the hitting guy, he'll be out on our field. We have this, you know, this... 100 foot diamond with with we call our motor learning laboratory has 40 foot high nets and net roof and he and uh rob gray will be talking about how to how to create representative designing practices so that so that you couple perception with action and you're hitting uh one of the things we're missing there is we're we're working on the action part a lot but really working on having adjustability in what we perceive and how we react to that and so they're going to be talking about that and then we'll have uh we'll have franz bosch and paul venner in our gym talking about how do we use strength and conditioning training to, to optimize our stability in our tractors while allowing enough fluctuations to be able to account for adjustability and deviations in our movement patterns. And so it's, it's going to be a really cool thing. You can sign up online at 4baseballranch.com slash summit, or you can call us at 866-787-4533. That's 866-STRIKE-3. And we can tell you all about it in person. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. We have a lot of people signed up. Right now we have I think we have 10 different major league teams who have already registered over 40 players or over 40 uh, registrants for the, uh, to attend the event. So that's going to be kind of cool. 
Major League Baseball is starting to figure it out that that the new frontier is now that we have all this data, the new frontier is what's the best way to train it? What's the best way to get after it? Sounds awesome. I mean, it really does. It sounds absolutely incredible. Um, Randy, I really appreciate you not just taking the time to do this episode today, but to take the time to learn about all this stuff and to to share it with everyone. Um, make sure, you know, September 8th and 9th, uh, head on down to Florida Baseball Ranch to do check out the Skill Acquisition Summit. Uh, Randy, appreciate you coming on again today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, anytime, I, I, I love, I'm a big fan of yours and your podcast, and I love what you're doing. And keep up the good work, my man. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Take care.